What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, this is Barry Ritholtz, and you're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, the podcast portion. A little background. I know Scaramucci, or as he's widely known, The Mooch, for a good couple of years. Um, We've done a number of shows together. We've been at various conferences together. But the way I kind of first got to know who he was... I've called him the man who rescued Dell, and and as you'll hear in the conversation, he's very self-effacing, and he's all about we the team. When he was at Goldman Sachs, it was the team, and when he was at um, other places like Neuberger and Berman or Lehman Brothers, it was all about the team. But I'm going to share a little bit of info that he was too modest to talk about. You know, when, when Dell ran into some trouble in the early 1990s, he was a young kid. He was a hotshot CEO, one of the youngest CEOs of an S&P 500 company ever. And they ran into a bunch of trouble. You know, HP kind of retooled and went after them. IBM um, became a better competitor. And at the same time, their CFO began dabbling in the currency markets, something as it turned out that he was wholly unqualified to do. And Dell, the company, lost hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars that they simply didn't have to lose. And they really needed a cash infusion. And my understanding, and this is second and third hand and based on some old research and some old conversations, was nobody was especially enthusiastic about getting this deal done. Um, Anthony said if he wasn't there, it would have happened. Somebody else would have picked up the ball. I'm less convinced of it. Uh, I think that he was a guy who was sort of an odd fit, Harvard Law to Goldman Sachs, uh, investment banking, not exactly the usual candidate. And I think that he was looking around for something that he understood and he could pick up and run with that nobody else really did. And he had was impressed with Michael Dell as a person, and he understood the situation as to the trouble the CFO had created by engaging in these currency hedges that all went bad. And so he decided to pick up the ball and with a great Rolodex and a great network and a very personable way about him, uh, essentially rescued Dell as a company, managed to get a lead, managed to raise money, managed to get the deal done. But what's fascinating about the discussion with Scaramucci is that he, for a guy who is as wildly successful as he is on pretty much every level. The company he's running, the conference he's running, uh, the resurrection of Louis Rukeyser's Wall Street Week. By just about any measure, he's a tremendously successful guy. The conversation we have is all about failure. He discusses how he was fired by from Goldman Sachs. He discusses how when he first launched Skybridge, it, it, it was pretty much a disaster. It wasn't happening the way they had hoped, and then the financial crisis had come along. 
But the, the thing that we hear over and over again in all the stories that he tells is that each subsequent failure is greeted, if that's the right word, as an opportunity, as a learning expense, uh, as a learning situation, as a, as, as a chance to pivot and try and do something new and different to rise from the ashes, so to speak. And Skybridge is a perfect example. He tells the story of how originally they started out as a hedge fund seating company, and that really wasn't going especially well when the financial crisis hit. And in the attempt to raise some seed capital from Citigroup, ended up essentially recognizing that they had to get rid of their hedge fund practice. It was a liability, and they were really retooling dramatically. And so Mooch, as he's known, ended up picking up uh, a couple of billion dollars in assets really very inexpensively and parlayed that into their nearly uh, uh, $10 billion fund of funds now and runs a very straightforward approach. Hey, if you're looking for us to beat the market, if you want to generate alpha, if you're looking for all those sort of things, that's not what we're going to do. That's not what we're capable of doing. He's pretty straightforward in not overpromising, and therefore he doesn't underdeliver. Uh, so I babbled on long enough. I think you'll find this to be a really, really interesting conversation. My interview with Skybridge Capital's Anthony Scaramucci. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Anthony Scaramucci. You may know him as the Mooch. He is the founder of Skybridge Capital and the impresario behind the Big Salt Conference, which takes place every year in Las Vegas. Anthony, welcome to Bloomberg. Barry, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So you're at Goldman Sachs in the 90s coming out of Harvard Law. You are summarily dismissed from Goldman. What do you do with your career at that so point? So now it's a Friday afternoon. I go home very rejected, and I wake up on Monday, dust myself off. I have a roll of quarters because we didn't have cell phones back right. then. I took a train back into the city. I started pumping quarters into pay phones, and I was calling my buddies, asking for help. And finally, I reached a, a fellow who's a great friend of mine. He said, hey, listen, there's a job offer and an opening at Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. I said, are you kidding me? He said, yeah, in the sales area. I said, okay, that's probably better suited for my skill set. So I called my old boss who had just fired me. Uh, his name was Michael Facitelli. He built the building that we're in. He was the CEO of Vernado Realty, went on to mm -hmm. become CEO of Vernado Realty Trust. I said, Michael, you got to help me get this job in sales at Goldman. Uh, and so he put a call in for me. I got interviewed. There were many interviews later. They offered me a job on March 28th. So I was out of Goldman from February 1st to March 28th, uh, but I got rehired About two Goldman. months. Yeah, about two months. So so there's an ironic thing. I got to keep the $11,000 sevens check, thank God. Right. I was and, paying you and, five grand a month. And, I, uh... and, I got, and I got myself a new job at Goldman, which is better suited for me. So, so the lesson for younger viewers out there is try to go for the jobs that you think you're well-suited for, not, not the ones sexy. that you think are you know, the sexy job. Uh, don't breed insecurity in your own personality. Go for the stuff you think so, you really So do. you stay at Goldman for a couple more years, but eventually, and I think it's 96, 
you end up leaving to launch Oscar Capital. That's correct. Yep. What, what was Oscar Capital like? So uh, it was Andrew Bozart. So his name was B-O-S, my first name. Uh, my last name is S-C-A-R. We dropped the B, called it Oscar Capital. Worst name in financial services history. Uh, every time we had a meeting, people thought, you're affiliated with Oscar Mayer, the hot dog company. Right. You know, Oscar the Grouch. But we built a $1 billion registered investment advisor that had a small hedge fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a very good relationship with Fidelity. We were part of their advisor referral program. Mm-hmm. I think Newberger wanted to be in that business with Fidelity. So that's why they bought They you. contacted Greg Fleming, who was the M&A banker at Merrill Lynch. He's now the president of Morgan Stanley. Mm-hmm. Greg was our merger banker. Uh, and we did the deal six weeks after the 9-11 terrorist attack. Really? In 2001? So you've gone for five years. Five years. Now you get bought by Newberger. Yeah. And I think it's two, and I'm assuming for a, a billion dollars in AUM, uh, there's a number of ways of, of calculating that. Um, a multiple of sales, or how, how did they figure out, I, I, I'm perfectly understand if you want to Blurt out the number, but what was the formula that we're playing with? It was it time yeah, sales I'm, I'm times a, assets. Yeah, you know I'm an I'm an open guy, but we, I did sign a confidentiality agreement. I assumed but it was as a, much. It was a reasonable multiple. I mean, I think of I earnings think, of of revenue. How do they how do they do? Yeah, it, it was multiple of revenues. But I think mm-hmm. I think the interesting thing about it is, I mean, none of us were crying when we when we did the deal. But I think the interesting thing about it is, you have to make sure if you're ever going to do a deal like that on your mm-hmm. own company. And you're going to sell it. You got to make sure you sell it to people that are similarly situated personality-wise. Thank God that was the case for us. Uh, I sold the business to a guy named Bob Matza and Jeffrey Lane. They were the two senior guys at Newberger, and they lived up to their promises. They were great people. Uh, Newberger then went on to sell Newberger Berman to Lehman Brothers. Right. And so that was an interesting point in my career because I had worked at Goldman Sachs and now we were all migrating over to Lehman Brothers and I became a managing director of Lehman Brothers in October of 2003. And you know, so- we, we had Jack Rivkin on the show some months ago. He was at Lehman, left, uh, more or less got fired. Joined Newberger. Joined Newberger and ends up coming back to, uh, actually his time at Lehman the first time became a Harvard Business School case yes, study. Yes, I remember the case study. Sure, he, he took them from last to first place in terms in the of research. research. Yep. Similar situation ends up at Newberger along with your friend Gary Kaminsky. Was at Newberger for a lot and his dad Gary for and, his, and his dad and his brother Michael and uh, Gary Kaminsky and I go back to 1982, uh, where one of his best friends from. Uh, the town Hewlett that he grew up in was one of my roommates in college at Tufts. So I've known Gary forever. Um, and it was really a lot of fun to work with Gary at Newberger. So in the last 30 seconds we have, how can you compare the culture at Lehman with the culture of Goldman Sachs? Very, very different places. Uh, these things evolved differently over time. So I'll just talk about the culture I remember at Goldman, inclusive, team-oriented, the pronoun use was we, the pronoun use was our, mm-hmm. uh, and you had to pass the ball. You did way better. Lehman, they had one eye on uh, the outside world, and they had one they had one gun trained to the outside world, and they had one gun trained on each other. Right. You see that? And that's a little bit more divisive. Eat what you other, kill sort of place? Sort of. And the other problem they had, and I do respect them, and I'm sorry that they're gone, but the other problem that they had, they had Goldman Sachs envy. Well, so, so did everybody else in the they, They'd sit at the conference table and say, well, we're just as good at Goldman as this. We're just as good as Goldman at that. And I remember thinking, hey, who cares what you're just as good at? Focus on yourselves. 
Right. And let's not have this relative comparison. I think it's a good message for younger people about their own lives. Right. If, if you're at a conference table and someone is saying that over and over again, the potential client is thinking to themselves, my, maybe I should check out Goldman. My <laughs> days were numbered when I raised my hand at an MD meeting. I said, guys, why are we so focused on Goldman? I can guarantee that they're not that focused on you. <laughs> right. And that, that was and probably that was pretty not, much- a, that was not a politically- <laughs> astute thing to say at that moment in my <laughs> But it career. was honest and it was true. Yeah, but you know that was another reason why I had to look on and <laughs> see if I could start another company. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Anthony Scaramucci of Skybridge Capital. Let's talk a little bit about your early days at Goldman. And I recall way back you telling a story that I found absolutely fascinating about when you were rotating through the different departments and you found a sort of if I memory serves correctly, a kind of orphaned deal that people really kind of were neglecting with some startup company called Dell Computer. Yeah, well, Dell at that time wasn't a startup. You know, Michael started the business in '84. Right. Uh, he in uh, college. He, he went public in '88 through Goldman Sachs. In the uh, summer of 1993, uh, Michael had gotten into a little bit of trouble with his laptops. The introduction of his laptops, the batteries weren't working well. Uh, they were actually catching fire, and he had to stop the production, and he had a little bit of a cash bleed and a little bit of a spin out there. Uh, one thing Michael Dell said to me, uh, in order to become Michael Dell and Dell Computer Corporation, there were about 8,000 decisions that he had to make, and he had to get about 7,900 of them right, and it's an interesting thing. And so he was in a tailspin, and uh, one of his best skills, he's an incredibly commercial guy, was that he needed a little bit of help. He needed a little bit of financing. And so, and uh, this isn't so long after they had the currency issue. Yeah, the currency the issue. CFO the CFO was trying to hedge, and yeah. basically, that was a combination. Two, two bad bet, and uh, two, wasn't two so much things. what Michael did, but what? Uh, yeah, we're going. Can we call it? I can't call him Michael, but you. Can well, call him you know, Michael. listen, I, 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 call him Michael, but you know, he is Mr. Dell. I mean, the guy is a masterful guy. He should be on your show. Make a uh, call. Way more than me, but, but to to tell you this story, it's 22 years ago, but I remember it very well. It was mid-August. Most of Wall Street was on vacation. Michael came into the uh, conference room. I got called into a meeting by one of the capital markets people. I was on the institutional sales desk at the time looking over the the deal. Uh, and then they asked me, look, we're going to put a convertible bond together. Do you think some of your clients would have an interest in this convertible bond? And I went out and uh, called several of my clients who were on vacation. I said, listen, this thing has a very low premium, meaning it'll convert into a lot of equity. It has a high coupon, uh, and I really think this is a good deal. And people looked at the financials and said, well, you know, the financials are a little shaky. I said, they are a little shaky, but this guy is not shaky. Uh, this is a- You're betting on Michael Dell. This is a steward of this business. Right. All businesses go through some hiccups. This is an opportune time when he gets this cash onto his balance sheet. He's going to retool the product cycle. He's going to freshen up and strengthen his balance sheet. And I think you guys uh, got to make this investment. And so long story short, and listen, this is a team approach. I'm not here uh, uh, running the flag up for myself, but Goldman Sachs went out and raised him- uh, I don't know. It had to be about $250 million. A lot of money at that time. 
Uh, and Dell went off to the races. If you right. look at that chart, one from of the there, great stocks of the 1990s yeah. from 93 forward, one of my, ma- the Apple of its day. No, no question. And one of my institutional investors, who I'm still very, very close to, just retired from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. His name is Bill Peterson. Uh, uh, remembers that deal fondly uh, because he said it was the top performing name for him over a five-year period of time that he held the stock. And so a combination, like I said earlier in our conversation, a little bit of providential luck, good timing, uh, but that helped me build a relationship with Michael, and I just have an enormous respect for him. We're speaking with Anthony Scaramucci of Skybridge Capital, talking about the time Goldman Sachs essentially rescued Dell Computers. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Michael Dell. He's been fairly active um, not so much him, but uh, MSK Ventures is MSD. MSD yeah. MSK is a yeah. whole something else. MSD. Yeah. Michael Astell um, is a fairly substantial venture capital operation. Are you still in touch with him much? Do you? How yeah, often do I, you bump into him? I'm, I'm actually in touch with him less. Uh, I see him once in a while at the World Economic Forum in, in Davos, Switzerland. He's obviously super busy raising his family, as am I, and he's got uh, and he's also private, taking Dell Private. He's got a private company that he's dealing with now, uh, which I predict at some point will probably go public again. Uh, but MSD Capital is, I think, a very diversified uh, portfolio. In addition to venture, private equity, they've got long portfolio, fixed income portfolio. And him and his team there have done a masterful job of managing his money. And I'm pretty sure they've taken in some outside money at this point. Are, are we going to see Michael Dell at a uh, SALT conference anytime soon? You, you know, we haven't gone in the CEO direction, but, you know, he's a terrific uh, guy to have at an event like that. So let's talk a little bit about Skybridge Capital because we really haven't touched on that. Um, that was post Lehman when you decided, all right, I've had enough of this. I've offended all the right people. It's time <laughs> to make head for the exit. You launched Skybridge Capital in what year was that? It was oh, March March of 2005. 05. And so I had worked at Lehman from October of 2003 to March of 2005. Um, a lot of guys were departing from the Lehman senior management team. I went to the guy that I was working for. I said, listen, I didn't grow up here in this organization. Guys that are in, I was 41 at the time. And I said, y- you guys that have grown up here 20 years that are now in your 40s, are super tight with each other. I I'm not in your. You're an camp. outsider within. I'm an I'm an outsider. These guys had a strong culture, and it was a good culture, different from Goldman. And but you have a little bit of an immune system because I'm transplanted in from Newburgh, Berman. So and I'm so getting some were, immunal rejection. You were rejected tissue. Is that yeah, what you I was said? rejected tissue, and no problem. <laughs> it could have been personality issues too. Right. But but but, but in fairness not, to them, well, but you know, I know you long enough that I know you're kind of. You get along with pretty much everybody. Yeah, I, you I don't know, know when if you've really rubbed that many people when the wrong you're, way. When you're opinionated in a politically correct or politically neutral organization- what? What's that like? Uh, that's, uh, well, you know what? <laughs> your your elbows, yeah, for somebody like you or me, our elbows may not be that sharp given the neighborhoods that we both grew up sure. in. Sure. But when you're in that sort of corporate environment where everybody's wearing a white shirt, right? Uh, you know, and you have an opinion, it may not be something that people super like about you. And so, uh, I think the more successful guys, and God bless them, they have a way of talking and a way of navigating those situations that you know I wasn't super successful at. Having said that, uh, uh, Richard S. Fold, Dick Fold, who I have enormous amount of respect for. 
Uh, he gave me $10 million of balance sheet capital, put it into our fund. A gentleman by the name of Jared Wade helped me get that done. He was on the senior relationship management uh, team there at Lehman. So they seeded so you very much the did. way Goldman seeds outgoing traders as well. They did. They put $10 million of their balance sheet into our fund, which helped me get uh, the catalyzation, if you will, of that fund started. And I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Anthony Scaramucci of Skybridge Capital. Anthony is the gentleman behind the resurrection of an iconic television show. Uh, Louis Rukeyser, Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser, was on Great for show. 20-something years. 30. 30 uh, years. Yeah, 35 uh, years. It's how a lot of people today uh, of our generation or maybe a few years younger first discovered investing Wall Street stocks back in the day. What made you think of bringing the show back? It's an amazing show, and I've seen almost all of the film libraries, half-hour show over 35 years. Louis Rukeyser, a classic guy. I think he was a master at explaining complex things in a way that regular people outside of our industry, Barry, can understand. And I don't want to say simplify them because these are very complex things. And sometimes when you try to simplify something complex, you really don't get it at all. He and never so, dumbed it down. He just gave he, he gave trusted it to the viewer to, to be smart enough. No question. But but made it understandable. L- L- Lizanne Saunders, who was on our show uh, this past week, uh, had a great story where she was very nervous the first time she met Lou. She was sitting in the chair. He said, are your parents in our business? And she said, no. He says, I'll tell you what, we're going to go on the air in a few minutes, but I want you to talk to your parents. I want you to explain the concepts that we're discussing to your mom and dad. If you do that, we're going to have a terrific show. And that's the spirit of what we're trying to capture with the return of Wall Street. So Wall Street Week. That's that's funny you mentioned that because my wife's an art teacher. My mother was a real estate agent. And that was always the goal. Hey, if you can make a, a real estate agent and an art teacher, if you can remove the jargon and speak in ways that they can understand it, well, then anybody can understand it. And, 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 and this is a good segue because I do think that some of the punditry on business television is uh, intimidating. And some of the punditry on business television is for the impression of other pundits. They want to impress each other while they're talking to each other. And so what Louis Rukeyser did uh, was he waxed away all of that stuff, Barry, and he really just tried to deliver high, thoughtful content. And so that show laid dormant for about 10 years. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Jeff Salkin had actually bought the rights to the show. He had a website up called Wall Street Week, um, and but he had not really figured out how to bring the show back on the air and to transform the brand. Uh, and so he came to see me. Uh, I had a conversation with him uh, and Maryland Public Television, and I acquired the brand from him and Maryland Public Television. The brand and the library? That's of, correct. So, so it's the access to the archives and the library. It's the uh, likeness of Mr. Rukeyser. Mm-hmm. It's the that great computer font digi- sure. digitization of the logo. Uh, and it's also uh, the website, the Twitter page, the Facebook page. Um, this stuff, I think, will be hugely valuable if we handle it right. From an what? editorial perspective, I want to try to explain to people what's going on. I think since your Bailout Nation bestseller, I think the average American is super intimidated by the markets, super intimidated by the volatility. Uh, they're uncertain. Uh, they're uh, 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 stashed in cash, if you will. 
And I think data they, just came out. More than half of Americans have zero dollars exposed to so, stock. Market. So you're you're supporting my thesis, Absolutely. and yet and yet we both know that the nation is undersaved. Uh, we're probably underslept, and we're probably overfed. We've got all the, <laughs> the the dials on our dashboard wrong. And so what we want to try to do is deliver a message to the average American that there's a simple and easy way to boost your savings, take more financial control of your life. Uh, uh, put yourself on the arc of the aspirational society that we all want to live in. And that requires you to take a little bit of risk in the stock market in a balanced way. It requires you to have the right fixed income exposure and portfolio um, and to be patient. And, uh, you know, you could you could spare yourself a latte a week. That's uh, $5 a week. That's $260 a year. And lo and behold, you're building a little nest egg for yourself. Or, or you could work at Bloomberg and there's free lattes yeah, all, all well, day long. Well, that's another great so, thing about Bloomberg. <laughs> Let me ask you a question about that archive. Are you going to – any plans to put that online? What are you going to do with all those yes, old and episodes? So, so if you go to wallstreetweek.com, you will see archival uh, – uh, stuff on the on the on on there. We also have it up on YouTube. Uh, we're we're finding new nuggets, new treasure every single day that, as we great. mine that archive. So you just had Jeff Gunlock and Liz Ann Saunders were two names I recognized yep, yep. last week. John, who Biden else do you have coming up uh, in the coming weeks? Well, uh, we're if you look at the Salt Conference list, mm-hmm. it'll give you a really good cross section of what we're trying to do. We want uh, policymakers. Hedge fund managers. Uh, we want possibly actors, music composers. You say, "Geez, why do you want that?" Well, you know what? Everybody in that group has a financial plan. And what the uh, immortal Lou Rokeiser would say to you is that the show has to be about the way the world works, because your money world and the way the world works are completely intersected. And we know that from Federal Reserve policy. We know that from governmental policy. And so I'm going to try to bring a very broad cross-section of guests to the program. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Anthony Scaramucci of Skybridge Capital and Wall Street Week. Let's talk a little bit about Skybridge Capital uh, it's become quite successful. It originally began as a hedge fund seating shop. Is that Correct. right? You were yes. looking to identify emerging managers. Yeah, my my original concept, and for the entrepreneurs out there, what happens is you start with a plan, and then you have contact with the enemy, and you have to switch your plan. And so I had a, a an idea. That's the great Muhammad. Was it um, Mike Tyson? He said Mike Tyson. everybody has right. a plan until they're punched in the face. That's exactly and so, right. And so most generals know once they have contact with the enemy, the plan goes out the wayside. But but for me, I had a seating idea. I was going to back early stage managers, take GP stakes in them, and then uh, literally have our LPs participate in the growth of the earning streams of these managers. Great looking on paper. Uh, but it's a little bit like a venture capital situation, and so got to seed hundreds of them to find that. We that didn't Google. have enough money to seed hundreds of them. We seeded ten. We seeded them in the years two thousand six and seven. Good time in the early part of two thousand eight. So we were in a barrel going over Niagara Falls, and right. so uh, <laughs> what's interesting is that one of those funds is doing quite well today, which we still own a small interest in. But that seeding business itself, uh, we had to make a decision to dismantle it, and so. I the, was the, by the way, the tech folks all call that a pivot. So you pivoted from yeah, seeding. Yeah, that's an elegant way to say that you're failing and got to come up with some <laughs> other idea. And so, so that's what we had to do. And and I and I'll tell you that our seeding business 
Uh, I would describe it as the old movie Apollo 13. It was a successful failure in the sense that the seating business was the lunar module that we lived in as we tried to figure out what we were going to do to crawl back into the command module and get back to Earth. And so uh, we had a bleeding asset, tons of redemptions, and there was a period, Barry, I'll look you straight in the face and tell you that I thought we were going out of business. And I remember in March of 2009, with the Dow at about 6,500, the S&P at approximately 660, I thought, this is it. And uh, we made. And two, it was. That was a good time to well, do we something Well, right we made there. two decisions there. Number one, uh, we started the SALT conference. Uh, uh, President Obama said, now's not the time to go to Las Vegas. And all the TARP recipients canceled their conferences on Las Vegas. Uh, that upset the mayor of the city. I called him, Oscar Goodman. And I said, listen, I want to bring a hedge fund conference to your great city. And so he put me in touch with Michael Milken. He put me in touch with the former governor. I got to meet Steve Wynn. And we put the first SALT conference in May of 2009 in the Encore Hotel, which is part of the Wynn Complex. Mm -hmm. I tell the story that way because we were really on our knees and I thought, okay, maybe we'll go into the conference business. There's a huge void in these uh, things. <laughs> Uh, and people said to me, well, how does the conference business tie into your seating business? I didn't have a great answer, uh, but I knew that there was an opportunity. I said, well, maybe we'll have a lot of hedge funds there and we can populate our seating business. But what it really turned out to be, uh, it turned out to be a great networking opportunity. And in the network, I discovered that Citibank needed to sell many of its non-core assets. So let, let's put this into the right context because I really love this story. So it's in the midst of the financial crisis. Yep. We're bottoming, but you know, three or four people, me and two other guys know, but nobody yep. else Nobody got else a, got the I've got the a email. plastic mouth brace that I've just had molded for my teeth because I'm grinding, <laughs> grinding them. in the middle of the I've night. Been, I've been told by many of my former colleagues at Goldman and Lehman that you know you're you're going out of business like you're Lehman, done. you're right. done. Uh, and but they City, were probably right. But, but City for the, presented the courage a fantastic, to stay in there. But that's a fantastic opportunity that you capitalized. In hindsight, it was a fantastic opportunity. At the time, many people had passed on the deal. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, because the the they had put the fund of funds unit into what's called City Holdings, which mm -hmm. was their place for dissolution right. or disposition. And so it was very hard for that terrific asset management team to Six market. Six or eight billion dollars? How much money was in that? Well, no. At that time, there was $1 billion of discretionary money in, mm -hmm. in that portfolio. I went to Michael Corbett, who's become a personal friend. He's a terrific guy. He was running City Holdings at the time. Mm -hmm. I wanted to buy his seating business. Uh, another big lesson to our listeners, think way bigger than that. He looked at me and said, hey, I can't sell you that seating business. I can sell you the entire fund of funds business. And I blinked and gulped and probably blanched white and said, oh my God, how am I going to pay for that? And But I looked at him with a poker face and said, you're on, I'd like to buy that business. And so it was out of desperation. It was a Hail Mary pass late in the fourth quarter. Uh, but all of that money that I earned from the sale of our first business to Newberger Berman I liquidated those assets and I brought them to bear to buy the thing from Citibank. I told my oldest son, whatever inheritance you thought you were getting from your dad, well, you're now long skybridge <laughs> through your eyeballs and you better hope I don't blow up the bridge. And so we got that deal done on the 30th of June 
2010, brought 24 people over. Uh, it's five years later. 23 of those 24 people are still with us. Uh, we've added more personnel. Our discretionary assets went from a billion dollars under management to $9.3 billion in the five-year period of time. And because there was a void in the conference space, uh, our conference also has done reasonably well over it's, that period of okay, time. Okay, so now I have to throw a yellow card on you. Because your conference hasn't done reasonably well, quote-unquote. So you mentioned my book. It came out in 2009, and I, you had me out to Vegas to be on a panel with Austin Goolsby, who was the former Bush, uh, former yeah. Council of Economic Advisor, yeah. chairman. Uh, I forget the congressman's name. A few other people on that panel. Yeah. And I have to tell you, that was one of the hottest conferences I had ever gone to. You had so Bill I'm, Clinton I'm, I'm, as a I'm keynote getting, speaker. I'm getting the yellow card because I'm understating. Because you're to- oh, totally understanding. Right, well, I wasn't. Uh, well, so, you know. By the way, Bill Clinton. I want at the that listeners to halfway like me. Remember, I'm a hedge fund guy, so I'm obviously a social pariah. So um, I want the viewers, uh, the listeners, to sort of like me a yeah, little. Well, but you're you're as an individual, you're fairly charming a character as a character. <laughs> I think people who, you call yourself the Mooch. Not a lot of people well, would that, do that. That was a that was a high school football name. My last name Scaramucci. Not a surprise. And so, you know, uh, people call me the Mooch. But some of the guests you've had at Salt. So this year is Ben Bernanke. Yes. The year I was on a panel, it was Bill Clinton. The year after, it was George Bush. I remember Bill Clinton, not that far removed from quadruple bypass, yep. walking into a very hostile room of about 2,500 hedge fund managers. And basically, by the time he was done, if he would have said, and that's why I'm running for president, and I want yep. each of you to write a $50,000 check, he would have walked out of that room with $20 million. Super, super popular guy, not only here in the United States, but globally. But I will tell you this, President Clinton made our conference unbelievable because because in in 2009 we had a smaller conference mm-hmm. uh four or five hundred people we then said okay let's go big and that's the magic of life you got to think really go big. big or go home go big and so i told the guys we're gonna we're gonna go after president clinton see if we can get him uh he had a guy working for him by the name of doug band and very nice guy uh and we signed him up pursuant to dates that work for the president and I will tell you very upfront, he made our conference because he credentialized the type of speakers 100%. that we wanted to get. And so it was easier to get President Bush. It was easier to get Governor Romney. It was easier to get Chairman Ben Bernanke, uh, Secretary Rice. We've got most of the secretaries of defense. We've had General Petraeus. We're bringing General Keith Alexander this year. Like the 1927 Yankees. So we're, we're really That's- trying to bring people who we think other people in our industry want to hear from and learn from. And so we've also cross-sectioned this thing. So we've had uh, people like Al Pacino. We've had Oliver Stone, who we did the movie with. You had the guy that Catch Me If You Can was based on. Yep. That was one of the yep. most fascinating yeah, Frank, conversations Frank ever. Frank Bisignali, great, great guy. How fascinating was that speech? Yeah, uh, Frank Abignelli, I'm sorry. That's right. I his name. But uh, that was a fascinating speech. It was a great story about redemption. It was a great story about uh, the mistakes that he made in his life and how he tried to uh, set his life right. Um, and I'm I sensing a theme a, here with you about a great failure story. and redemption. Failure and redemption. I think it's a classic American thing. I think one of the thing, one of the big advantages our country has over these other countries is that we accept people who are willing to take enormous amounts of risk. 
uh, they can fail, dust themselves off, and Start re- over again. Re- restart. This and is what the was Henry why. Ford in his fifties? It was like his sixth or eighth company. Yeah, or Thomas look at, Edison. Look at look at Sam Walton, forty six years old, two failed stores, started Walt, what became Walmart when he was forty six, and so the greatest, many of the stupendous things about our country, but one of the greatest things is the culture to accept risk takers. Uh, to accept failure. Uh, it's the reason why Facebook is invented here. Google is invented here. Apple started here. Talk about failure and redemption. Jobs gets fired. Jobs gets comes fired. back. Well, we showed a great scene from him in 1996 being interviewed by the uh, late Louis Rukeyser talking to Steve. Should he dismantle the company or should he try to grow it? And Steve was gung-ho. He said, I'm, I'm coming back to create a new spirit of innovation we were 10 years ahead of our competitors back in the day. My goal is to get us 10 years ahead of our competitors again. It's a brilliant commentary about what you need to do in life. Think big or go home. We've been speaking with Anthony Scaramucci of Skybridge Capital about the SALT Conference. Uh, if you enjoy these conversations, be sure and check out the rest of our chat. You can find that on Bloomberg.com or on Apple iTunes. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Anthony, where can people find you if they want to track, uh, they, track they, your information they, down? They can find me at Scaramucci at SkybridgeCapital.com. Uh, they can also go to uh, WallStreetWeek.com and they can toggle to Prosper at WallStreetWeek.com. That's all the viewer emails or commentary about the website. I read every one of those, and so and I try to respond to them as well. And your Twitter handle is? My Twitter handle is at Scaramucci. Easy enough. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Barry Ritholtz. My guest today is Anthony Scaramucci. Anthony and I know each other over the years from the street. It's not exactly a big place. Let me fantastic book, Bailout Nation. Thank you. Um, let me give you a little little background on, on who Anthony is and how he got to be where he is today. Undergraduate at Tufts, graduate with a degree in economics, on to Harvard Law, which is uh, interesting that you took the Harvard Law degree straight to Goldman Sachs. And from Goldman Sachs, you eventually left to set up your own fund, which, long story short, bought by Newberg and Berman, which eventually was bought by Lehman. So you've really been pretty well-versed all over the street. Well, listen, it's been a blessed career, and and you know as a fellow entrepreneur that a lot of your success is providential. You certainly have to work hard. You have to relate to people well, but at the end of the day, you get a couple lucky breaks, too, that helps your career slope. I'm still I'm still working on that relating to people well part. But the lucky well, stuff you got, is- you have the radio show. I'm just the guest. <laughs> you must be doing a good job relating so, to people. <laughs> well, I'm just curious. So that and you're a perfect person to ask a question, a bunch of questions to to sate that curiosity. So let me start right off the bat. Uh, Harvard Law is a very storied institution, uh, a a very specific culture as is Goldman Sachs, a very different institution and a very different culture. What was that transition like? Going to law school, say, I'm going to be a lawyer and ending up well, uh, at Goldman. Well, I, I had a you know an interesting background. My parents never went to college. You're uh, a real, my, come, my from my a dad, class, come from a middle class, come from a middle class family. Guy, I would, right? Yeah, I would never disrespect my parents by telling you I grew up poor because I did not grow up poor. We were resoundingly in the middle class. We had plenty of food, clothing, air conditioning, heat. My dad you was a very, very yeah. We did actually. That's why my hair's so straight. <laughs> but we 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 had a uh, 
a narrow casted view of the world. I didn't take the SAT prep at Stanley Kaplan. I didn't really have a good idea of what was going on for college placement. Uh, my dad was working at a, a place called Gotham Sand and Stone on Long Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, he built a relationship with a gentleman that had gone to Tufts University. And the gentleman's name is Billy Tommaso. He's, he's passed on now. He's a terrific guy. My father came home one night and said, you and your brother, you're going to Tufts University. Uh, we thought it was spelled T-O-U-G-H. We had no idea <laughs> what it was. My brother, that's, my that's brother, where the tough guys come from. My brother's a couple years older than me. He looked in the uh, Barron's book and he said, Dad, this thing is most selective. I don't know how we're going to get in there. He said, well, you both have good grades. My friend Billy said he went there and he loved it. That's where you're going to school. I said, well, I don't know. Is it that easy? We both applied. My brother is a couple years older than me. Uh, he applied, got into Tufts University, liked it. And I said, okay. So I applied to a couple of schools, got into Tufts University. And now what do you want to do with your career? Well, you know what? I had no idea. I read in a uh, magazine article that lawyers at Cravath, Swain, and Moore in right. 1985 were making 65000 U.S. dollars a year. I said, oh, my God. Uh, you know, it's about what my dad is now making. And I said, I can get out of law school and make almost as much money as my dad and have this incredible life, I guess. I thought $65,000 a year was more money than I could ever want or need. So very simplistically, Barry, I applied to seven law schools uh, and I got into Harvard. Uh, Harvard's and, down the block from Tufts. I went down there and made the deposit. Right. Once you get into Harvard, that's pretty much uh, the, the other options really fade unless you're looking to specialize in something uh, unusual. That, that's the story. And so now I'm at Harvard and it's dawning on me that I'm not well suited to be a lawyer. <laughs> And so oh, now, always, always a interesting time to discover that. Yeah. In your second, was it? How soon did you realize that? Well, because it took me pretty, to about my second year of law school pretty before quickly. I said, "Yeah, I don't want to be a lawyer." Well, this is a this is another classic mid '80s story. You can't do this now because of the post 9/11 security. But uh, I decided that I was going to be a Wall Street lawyer, and so mm-hmm. once I put the deposit down at Harvard. I went to their placement area. I asked for their placement book, mm-hmm. uh, not knowing a lot about how the world works. I thought Wall Street lawyers lived on Wall Street. And so I opened up the book. Uh, I looked at number one Wall Street, which is the old Irving Trust building. It's mm-hmm. now a national landmark. There's a law firm there by the name of Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed. And I said, okay, I'm going to put my resume. I typed it up on a Panasonic typewriter. I took the number four train down to uh, Wall Street. I rode the elevator up to the 28th floor. Nobody no se- stops you. No Just security. Walk right in. Walked in there, and I had a list of Harvard alums that were there. And so I was like, hey, is you know Worthington Babscom the 32nd here? <laughs> and, the, and the woman said, yes. I said, well, I'm Anthony Scaramucci. I'm here to see you. Is he expecting you? I said, well, yes, yeah, sort of. And she was like, oh, okay. He comes out, lovely man. Uh, I said, sir, I desperately need a job. I've got, you know, financial aid to help me with school. Not financial aid, more like loans. Right. I said, can you, can you, can you give me a job this summer as a paralegal? I'll do anything. He said, well, come into my office, son. We sat down. We had a conversation. He says, okay, I'll pay you $8 an hour. I said, sir, could you make it 10? <laughs> he looked at me, are you kidding me? I said, no, I really need the money. Could you make it 10? He said, yeah, I'll pay you $10 an hour. I worked 70 hours a week. Uh, uh, this was back in the day where Continental Airlines was buying People's Express, which sure. was a Newark-based discount airliner. And I worked on that merger all summer. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, this I'm not well-suited for this. 
Um, and so I went to Harvard Law School thinking I was not going to be a lawyer. Thanksgiving Day, 1986, I told my parents that I wanted to leave law school. Now, when I was going to Harvard, my mother thought it was Hartford Law School. So when we were packing the car, she said, uh, we're going to Hartford? I said, no, Ma. Boston. She, I said, we're going to, we're going to Cambridge. Cambridge, right. She says, no, no, no. Isn't Harvard Law School in Hartford? I said, no, no. It's Harvard and Harvard are very different. And so anyways, my parents didn't care whether it was Harvard Law School or Hartford Law School. They wanted their son to be a lawyer. And so when I told my mom I wanted to quit law school, uh, like a Jewish mother, Barry, right. the Italian the mother, oven. Yeah, the Italian mother, forget about it. It was a very histrionic event. I said, no problem. I'll finish law school. Uh, and then I was and we'll des- something else desperately seeking a job. And so I read several articles about Goldman. Uh, uh, but I made a classic career mistake that young people make mm-hmm. is that I went for what I thought was the coolest and the hottest job. Maybe that's a job at Google today. Maybe that's a job at Facebook. But back in our day, the hottest, coolest job was investment banking mm-hmm. or McKinsey Consulting. And uh, even better than that, because the real estate market was super hot, sure. to be a real estate investment banker. And so, you know, I wanted to be the kid at the Harvard graduation at the cocktail party tell people I got the hottest and the coolest job. And so I went and sought that job, got the job, uh, went to that party and bragged about it with my amazing insecurity at that time, went to work at Goldman Sachs, and 18 months later, I was summarily fired. Really? Yeah. I got fired from Goldman Sachs on February 1st, 1991. I started there on August 14th, 1989. Uh, And the the reason I got fired was three reasons. Super uh, terrible at the job, number one. (laughs) Number two, we were going into a uh, real estate recession and the firm was making an extreme cutback. And the combination of me not being, even though I was working very hard, I didn't have the skill set. And the recession, uh, they gave me a pink slip. They gave me an $11,000 severance check and they told me I had to leave. And I was devastated. I can imagine. By the way, I'm going to say this now. There's all sorts of stuff you said. First, I'm going to flip. He's got like nine phones, and they're all lighting up with emails. First, I think you're very, very self-effacing and understating some of the things that you've done. So the story I heard with you and Dell was that it was the middle of the summer, and nobody at Goldman was really paying attention. That in the scheme of things, that $150 or $250 million deal— was a relatively small deal, and there were bigger fish to fry. There were multi-billion-dollar mergers. There was all sorts of stuff going on. And that was, I don't want to say orphan, because Goldman Sachs doesn't orphan a deal, but there was a lot of other hotter, bigger things going on. But it's not really me being self-effacing, because you have to understand the, the, the machinery and the capability of Goldman Sachs today and in 1993. If, if I was not at the firm that deal would have happened with with or without me. And I'm not saying that in a self-effacing way. I'm just talking about the wonderful organization and the uh, the people, the depth of the bench at Goldman Sachs. There's no doubt but, about that. But I that. will say this. Uh, I took a big liking to Michael Dell, and I admired Michael Dell. And I remember teasing him. I said, geez, you know, you did everything wrong. I did everything right. And I remember him looking at me, what do you mean by that, Anthony? I said, well, I listened to my mom and went to college. I listened to you my mom. <laughs> I went to law school. I, you dropped out. Uh, you got into a fight with your parents over dropping out. You were building computers in your dorm room. 
I was selling T-shirts, okay? You went on to be worth a gajillion dollars. The 15th wealthiest I, person in America. Yeah, God bless him, and I hope he gets the number one. So but, the way— but, but I, the way... My point is, you know, he, he was a guy that I really looked up to, mm-hmm. and I said, you know what? Uh, he's going to turn this thing around, and I, I believed it. So, and so I, I definitely went out there to try to convince my clients of that. So I heard this story third hand from other people, and I've asked you about this over the years. So the way this story came to me was— Sort of, I don't want to use the word orphan, but not the most, you know, not the one that was flashing red on Goldman's investment banking desk. You kind of found it and said, oh, this is a really interesting deal. You're the guy that lots of people gave sort of a lukewarm, yeah, well, if you get a lead, which is sort of a cowardly thing we all hear when you're raising money for something. Well, who's the lead? Who's the, who's the, the, who's the, which means, Who's the guy that's going to do the heavy lifting, the due diligence, so I don't look yeah, like anchor a the jerk? Deal. Anchor the if deal. If it goes sure. south, at least I could say, well, look who the lead was. They got it yeah. wrong also. Yeah. And that you're the one who reached out to people at, I believe it was TIA Craft. Is uh, my research right? Well, you know, it's so funny you say that because the guy is working at TIA Craft now. He His name is Bill Regal, mm-hmm. and, uh, but he's he was but at they J.P. Were the Moore. Lead. They were the lead. It was J.P. Morgan Investment Manager. Bill's working at Craft now. Right. He's a tremendous guy. And uh, he, but that was a lead that was yeah. enough to get convince everybody else. Wow, you to really, come in. you really did do your research because that's twenty, here. that's twenty two years ago. Yeah. Uh, but Bill, Bill looked at the deal. He said, "Well, the financials are pretty crummy, uh, but the story is good." I said, "Well, forget about the story. This guy can execute." Okay, and this business, like most technology businesses, are going to have fits and starts, but he's got a great forward game plan. And so, you know, and the credit goes to Bill. At the end of the day, it's one thing to serve something up. Right. Uh, but this guy had to pull the trigger and make the investment. And so, so you, but you, now you're in the sales department. Yeah. You're the guy who basically said, hey, I, I, there's nothing on Wall Street that's guaranteed. This is a home run. This is, a, you have to participate in this. Would they put in fifty or a hundred, some number yeah. like that? Well, they and it they, was a ten bagger or more, they, twenty bagger. For they them? they did ten percent of the deal, and now you're really getting me to remember the whole thing. And so once they got ten percent of the deal, like you're saying about Wall Street, they were a big name anchoring the deal, and then people started saying, "Wait a minute, there might be something here." And then orders started flowing, right? And then you've worked in these places, and so have I. And so what happened was they were anchoring the deal. And uh, the capital markets people wanted to cut them back on the allocation, and so that was a little bit of a pushing and shoving match, and somewhat hey, politically. You wouldn't have gotten all this if it wasn't somewhat for politically us. incorrect sure. because I got I got in there and and roughed it up a little so, bit and hey, said, "You guys can't do you this. Can't the do deal that. Happened because of that. Cannot do that." And so you know, and that was probably not the most politically astute thing for me to do. But I really felt I needed to be a strong advocate uh, for those guys that got in early, and it was the right thing to do. And but absolutely. but they and they got the full load of the allocation, which ended up being a great thing for them in their investment portfolio. So so it's an interesting story, um, but it goes back to something you and I know, and it's a universal truth about business. Business is about relationships, and business is about. As Buffett says, it takes 20 years to build your reputation, but start with the principles of fairness. Start with the principles of uh, doing the right thing for the other guy in the room uh, and not trying to take the last nickel out of something. Right. Uh, and you'll see that your career will grow and people will make bets on you. So speaking of relationship, what was your – at that point – like, by the way, the reason I know as much as I do about that deal is I've described you to people. When people say to me, who's this guy, Scaramucci? 
Mooch is the guy who saved Dell back in the early nineties. Yeah, I know. There's a, I, a that's bit an of exaggeration. Hy- there's a bit of hyperbole that, in that. That's an exaggeration. But but that's how I describe it. But since you mentioned relationships, what's your relationship like subsequent with Michael Dell? Is he involved in any of your other deals? Well, or he, ventures he was or? he was an original investor in Skybridge. Uh, but uh, speaking fairness, of a great anchor, yeah, you great, could, you great, do a lot worse than great, Michael great anchor investment, uh, and uh, I'm very, very grateful for him for being an original anchor alongside of Merrill Lynch and alongside of Lehman Brothers. Uh, but the the wait, the, so Merrill was an investor in Skybridge. Yeah, the in first addition the to first Lehman. couple of investors were Michael Dell, uh, Merrill Lynch, uh, Lehman. There were a few others like that. The uh, the Kuwait Investment Organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had a really good stable list of investors. Um, and but Michael's no longer investor because we're out of that seating business. Right. And he did a masterful job uh, with a group of partners building his own family office, which is arguably one of the best family offices in the world. And so so he doesn't really need Skybridge uh, to run his money, uh, but we've remained friends. Uh, he's a very, very good guy, incredibly charitable, him and his wife. Uh, and uh, I have a prediction, which I think when Dell reemerges uh, from its private equity position, private company position, mm-hmm. I think it will flourish again as a public company. So. MSD. And I think Michael's still in, in the halftime in, here at, at, at Michael's probably 50. I think he's got a good 30, 40 year run to go here. MSD Ventures is somewhere. MSD in the, Capital. Capital is somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 or 30 billion dollars. I'm not like sure. It's the size of the Yale Endowment. Yeah, it's, not, it's pretty substantial. I'm not sure, but they've done a masterful job that that place got started in 1998, and uh, or I could be wrong, 97 or 98. And so it's almost uh, 20 years old. Uh, and they've done a masterful job of helping Michael with it and his family with their uh, investments. To, to say the least. So so we talked a little bit about how you got into the financial services industry. Really, you were just knocking on doors. I don't know if you could do that today. But you also talked about some early mentors. Who are the people that were early and influential in your career that that you remember fondly? Well, I mean, many of them are still very close friends of mine. Bob Cashrignano, who ran the Goldman Sachs training program. Uh, Bill Groover, uh, who ran the training program before Bob, who's now a professor at Bucknell University. Uh, I would tell you that Bob Matza and Jeff Lane uh, are very close to me. Those are the guys that were from Newberger Berman that bought my company. Andrew K. Bozar Jr., uh, who was the co-founder of Oscar Capital, mm-hmm. but really the senior partner there. I was his junior partner. I would say without Andrew K. Bozar Jr., I don't think I would have had the courage, Barry, to leave Goldman Sachs when I did. Uh, I always dreamt about having my own business, but I think Andy provided me with the security and the financial stability, and I sort of knew that uh, going into partnership with him, because he's such a naturally good person, uh, uh, would lead to good things for me. Um, and so I have to pay huge tribute to him. Uh, John Weinberg, the legendary John Weinberg, who I had the opportunity to be his private banker for a few years. He was the CEO of Goldman. He retired in 1990, uh, had some great aphorisms that I'll remember the rest of my life. Uh, one was, some people grow, Barry, and other people swell. And you, and you better figure out who you are. Okay, and I think that was a very interesting thing I about life and not getting too full of yourself. Uh, the other thing you used to say is that trees do not grow to the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never seen a tree hit the moon, so be careful because um, markets are cyclical. Uh, markets get exuberant. 
Uh, he was a very, very wise, earthy guy uh, that really shaped the culture. Him and John Whitehead really shaped the culture of Goldman Sachs and really explained to people that you're going to do a lot better if you can work on the team, figure out what your strengths and weaknesses are. Don't be insecure. Don't try to go after the credit, if you will, but pass the ball. And uh, so I look at those people as great mentors of mine. I've probably left out 10. I don't want to make this like an Academy Award speech. I probably left out 10 other people. But what we know about life, you can't do it on your own. you got to ask people for help. Uh, ben Franklin once said uh, several hundred years ago, if you want a friend, you got to ask the person for a favor. And what typically happens is once you ignite that person's willingness to help you, and I'm in the camp that most people are good-natured, and if they can go out of their way to help you, they will. Michael Milken, uh, uh, who I don't talk to every day, but I sort of feel like I can pick up the phone. God forbid if there was a health issue in my family, Michael would be there. One of my uh, partners had a prostate cancer scare. Uh, I picked up the phone and called Michael. He spent an hour on the phone with my my colleague. Uh, he's a great man. I've tried to be a uh, charitable donator to his health care charities. He's a guy that if I had to make a big decision, uh, I would call him and I would ask him for his advice. And so my message to our listeners is if you want to make a friend, ask for the favor. Push the envelope a little bit. Let's talk about um, not just mentors. What investors influenced how you your career went on? Who, who did you look at? Everybody says, well, Warren Buffett was really influential. But anybody that perhaps people may not know quite as well, um, what investors did you find really influential and, and seminal well, to you? Well, you know, the, the, the classic investors like Buffett or Munger or Phil Fisher, I think everyone's going to talk about those guys. Phil Fisher I, um, from Phil, where? Phil, Phil Fisher uh, is Ken Fisher's dad, you know, Ken Fisher's Fisher Investments. Right. But, but Phil was the real champion, and this is Charlie Munger's persuasion of, of Mr. Buffett, who was buying cigar butts that were half-smoked. Right. And he was buying them at a discount, picking them up off the street, so to speak. Uh, he convinced uh, Mr. Buffett to start buying growth-oriented companies at fairer prices. And don't be super concerned about that huge value orientation. Make sure you're in a great business that has a moat around it that can excel. Uh, and, and, and Warren Buffett and Phil Fisher and these guys were more focused on uh, how companies perform and not necessarily how stocks trade. They're more focused on investing as opposed to day trading. And so those guys are a huge influence to me. Um, but I'll tell you something that may or may not surprise you. Uh, for my career, I'm more interested in the Steve Jobses. I'm more interested in the the guys that uh, the Richard Bransons or the, the people I call the Holy Trinity of Disruption, which would be Ted Turner, Howard Schultz, and Richard Branson. Why am I so interested in those guys? And you have it's Branson this year. Okay. I do have Richard this year. Uh, they are breaking new ground. Uh, I, I, I'll tell you something. I'm in a commodity business. Fund of funds management, there's a, a several hundred of those sorts of things. Who else is in a commodity business? Well, there's a company that makes five products. They make a smartphone, a tablet. They used to make an MP3 player. They have a hard top and a laptop. Now they're going to have a watch, Okay. And that, they still make the MP3 players, just just no longer a hard drive. Well, it's just all yeah, solid state. Well, 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 yeah. Well, they and they've also built it into the iPhone. But mm-hmm. but Apple computer with those five commodity products, Barry, and everybody in the world is making those products, particularly everybody in Asia. Apple computer has turned itself into the largest market capitalized 
company because they understood how to take a commodity and turn it into an experience. You walk into their stores, you're on their their app store, you're in their iBook store, you're on their iTunes store. All of a sudden, you're in their ecosystem. You feel hipper, you feel cooler. Your 15 to 18-year-old daughter wants that phone versus the others. And they turned a commodity into an experience. Howard Schultz, he turned a commodity, coffee that you and I went to the Landmark Diner in Manhasset (laughs) and bought for 25 cents in a Greek diner coffee cup. He turned that into an experience. I walk in there now. It's got earth tones on the floor. There's a green apron. I'm speaking in their language about ordering something that I used to pay 25 cents for that I'm spending $4 for. Uh, There's some good folk music in there, and I'm super happy about the whole thing. And so so what I look for, these guys took— By the way, I'm going to combine the two. I take the Starbucks app Yeah, and go Exactly, and you got— And I don't even reach into my pocket. You go to pay for this— your fo- that's the funny thing is your phone is always out. Your wallet's buried somewhere. Well, that's Just another swipe. One hundred percent, and that's Apple Pay, and 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 so so not from, even Pay. This was pre-app. No, pay. exactly. That's Starbucks's uh, card on there. But but my 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 point is, Richard Branson, big commodity last fifty years, air travel. Air travel. Look at what he did to air travel. The colors, the change. He turned those planes into an experience for the customer. We turned and a coffee it's shop. It's a great experience. Howard Schultz turned a coffee shop into an experience for the customer. Skybridge, we are trying to turn our investment thesis and our performance into an experience for the customer. We want them to come to the SALT conference and learn from some of the smartest people in the world uh, what's going on in the world. We want them to tune into our television show, Wall Street Week, and get a 30-minute SALT conference every week. We want them to be investors of ours. And we want to help make them long-term investors. You know, uh, you've heard this before, but maybe your view, uh, your listeners haven't. If you take the following two choices, would you like $10,000 a day or would you like a penny that I hand to you that doubles every day? So I'll give you $10,000 a day for 30 days or I'll hand you a penny and it will double every day for 30 days. What do you want, Barry? I got the math background, so I know I want that doubling penny. Yep, and so that doubling penny yields about $5.4 million. If you're in your car, don't Google it. But if you're at home, go to Google and look up a penny doubling every day for 30 days, and you'll see the spreadsheet come up. And what you'll find about life, if you can get people to think about their money going to work for them and compounding gradually in the marketplace – uh, it'll mean a more financially stable society, a more financially f- a stable and secure future for the individual. And this is something that I'm very passionate about at Skybridge. We're going to try to make that broader and more open for the average person. So let's talk a little bit about your buddy, Gary Kaminsky, yep. who uh, I'm, I know he lives the next town over from me. You actually don't live that far from me either. Yeah, we're all. Although we're all, I just moved yeah. a little east, so there I'm must a, be there must be something in the water from Long Island. You got all our big mouths living in the same area together. Uh, it's it's not that far. We have a mutual friend, Jim McCann, who was on the show. Yeah, That's great, great. Not human that being. far from where you live uh, as I'm, well. I'm a partner of his in the New York Mets, by the way. So he's a great human being, and uh, Jim's son, Matthew has worked at Skybridge for the last decade. Oh, really? One of the first employees at Skybridge. So we had him on the show, by the way, to talk about his new charity that he's doing. Yeah, he's, he's like, wonderful. And he's like, oh, you know, we're really not ready to talk about that yet. <laughs> Jim, I wanted you to 
let's raise you a little money. It's like uh, later. Okay. It's it's uh, and it's actually a wonderful local charity. Wonderful and, uh, guy. I, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes. But let's talk about Kaminsky. He so, would go in that mentor role model camp too. By the way, that I really so Andy. Gary's a little no older no no. Too, I mean right? Jim. Oh, okay. Gary. Gary's a contemporary Can of ours. I tell He's you, a very close personal friend. Before I left to launch my firm, yeah, I had dinner with Jim and and said, yeah. here's what I'm thinking about. There's a few people like that in my life. Yeah. Another guy is uh, Ed Mendel, Ned Davis's yeah, sure, partner. Sure, I know. And basically said, here's what I'm thinking about. And each of them, from a very different philosophical approach, gave me very good advice, very complimentary advice, but from a different angle. And, and McCann is one of the... How do you describe him? He's just very easygoing and very insightful. And he's got, like you and I do, a pretty thick New York, Long Island accent. And he sort of surprises you because what comes out of out from that accent is a little different than I think a lot of people expect. He, he's a he's a wonderful human being and he took something uh and this is what I love about life and uh, great American entrepreneurs can take nothing and turn it into something. Literally a flower a, shop. He took a Queens flower shop and turned it into an internationally recognized iconic brand. And so when I sat down with him uh, in Manhasset, had dinner with him when I was starting Skybridge, uh, he gave me a lot of good advice. And he said, hey, my son will come in and intern for you. And this is a great story. The kid worked for me for three months, fell in love with him. And I offered him a permanent job. The thing is, I couldn't offer him the permanent job until I was confident that we were raising the capital. But once we got the capital in place, I turned to Matt and said, hey, we got to offer you a permanent job. He's there for 10 years. And so I not only owe Jim some of uh, uh, the, the benefit of his great advice, but he also put his first, uh, second-born son in my office. So I'm very grateful for that, too. So let's talk about Kaminsky. Yep. So, um, so, so Gary is a Dear friend, we've known each other forever. Uh, Gary has a wonderful way on television. He's very quick on his feet, as you were talking about. Knowledgeable, articulate, very fast. Uh, uh, he's he's got a real expertise behind. Like he's, you, he's I don't know if you look at the same way when I watch other people on TV. And look, you and I have been <clears> doing CNBC and Fox and Bloomberg for, for a decade. I watch somebody on TV, and in 10 seconds, it's like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Or this guy is trying to be outrageous to make a call. Or, like, you and I, I assume, are kind of critical. And when you see somebody like Kaminsky on TV, right away you say, oh, there's a real depth and knowledge back here. Well, this guy you really. You have to remember, so he's a money man. I mean, he was running billions and billions of dollars at uh, Newburger Berman. Uh, he's one of the best money managers of our generation. His so dad know, was it was a, dad, a MD there, right? Dartmouth for a long time? grad, MD, a brilliant guy, still working at Newburger uh, with his uh, other brother Michael. They have a great team there. Uh, full disclosure: they manage some of my uh, retirement money and my family trust. I have an enormous respect for the Kaminsky family as investors. Uh, but here's something that Gary has been absolutely brilliant about. And, and for you and I, a decade, but Gary has been on television for 25 years. Okay? That's his amazing. First, his first time on TV, I think he was 2014. 15. Well, yeah, well, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, let's put him back. I call him Grandpa Gary now just to tease him. But, but, uh, but he's, uh, he's been a, a great friend, but he's an insightful guy. Here's the thing I find that we have to be careful of as pundits. 
We don't want to just provide information to people. We want to provide them insight. And, what and to context do. with that information. Exactly. Context, what to do with the information. There's nobody better on television than Gary Kaminsky in doing that. And I'll tell you another thing about Gary Kaminsky. Uh, the guests want to be on the show uh, in large part because of him. Not because uh, of you, in other words. Well, let me put it to you this way. I think he knows these guys a lot better than me, a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. you know. And I have some close friends in the hedge fund community and some close friends as a result of SALT. But being on television 25 years and interviewing different money managers over that span of time, he had his own television show about five years ago. Uh, he has a whole code array, a whole broad, deep Rolodex of people that I think are fascinating that I'm looking forward to having the opportunity to interview on our show. At the time of Gary's show, I, which was the name of it was? Strategy Session. Right. I thought it was the best show on the CNBC lineup, yeah. but they had put it at the wrong time. It wasn't a lunch hour show. It was either a 7 a.m. show or a 4 p.m. after the bell show. Yeah. But in the middle of the day... It didn't find its audience, and it was very smart and very well done. Well, listen, I mean, there's a lot of different things that go on in these places in terms of how you make decisions about leaving a show on the air or not. And so one of the things that Gary and I, Skybridge, what we thought we would do is we would make the show ourselves. Mm -hmm. This way we could show the show whenever we wanted. You can go to WallStreetWeek.com and watch it. Uh, we are televising it on Fox Affiliates because I am a contributor to Fox Business and Fox News. But now that's something new because you weren't always a contributor. Fox. No, no, I had a I had a prior relationship with CNBC, and um, that was but, for a couple of a good couple of years. Yeah, a couple of years. Uh, but I and have, they were a spo- now I know Bloomberg is a sponsor of the conference. Bloom- Wasn't CNBC at one time yeah, a sponsor? C- CNBC Still a con- sponsor. Uh, well, uh, you know, I think there's a couple of guys coming from the internet side, but mm-hmm. I think the the television side uh, this year will be Fox Business and Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. And and listen, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, um, I have fallen in love with uh, Roger Ailes and Bill Shine. Uh, Roger uh, has done an. I want to talk about an entrepreneur. I got to put him up there with the other ones we were referencing. Fox is a giant. But money but you maker. just got to think about what Roger Ailes did. He started something from absolutely nothing. Um, and he'll tell you himself that people were throwing eggs and tomatoes at him and Rupert Murdoch, scoffing at the idea that they were going to take on CNN. Can I, can I tell you? Look at, look at what he's done. I don't, so he's one of my intellectual heroes. I you know, don't agree with the politics of, of some of the crazy that we bun, run into on some of the more radical shows on Fox. But when you look at it strictly from a business perspective, they may be the most successful cable television well, channel Ever. Well, listen, I, I, I think that there are crazies on the left, there are crazies on the right, and I know uh, But MSNBC people, has no influence. Fox no, is I enormously that, I, influential. I think that people scoff at the tagline, fair and balanced, but I always tell people who aren't watching it, go watch it, because it is fair and balanced. They are bringing a ton of Democrats on the show. They are bringing a ton of left-leaning people. Uh, I would argue with the fair right, and balanced thing, we're, we're, but, from course, the, but, there's no, but there's no argument- from a business perspective, they Just, are the mo- one of the, if not watch, the most successful. Watch Bill O'Reilly's show for one week, and you tell me where he's not fair and balanced. So what's a pretty fa- fair, independent guy. So let me tell you, this is an interesting digression, but Bill O'Reilly, when he first started, was kind of described as the wild man of Fox, and now Bill O'Reilly is essentially the adult supervision. He is. The closest thing to fair and balanced on Fox, when you compare him, he's practically statesmanlike, 
against some of the other, uh, I'm not going to mention people by name, but some of the more extreme shows. And, you know, every now and then there's some really. Listen, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a declared Republican. And so but you, when I, I, but I, that's I a transition be, for you as well. Well, no, I've always been a Republican, but my law school classmate who was a couple of years behind me, Barack Obama, when he ran for the presidency. <laughs> two years I, behind you, is that right? Two years behind me. I did support him in 2008. And so as a good Roman Catholic, I'm paying penance now to the, <laughs> to the Republican Party for doing that. But, but so, you know, listen, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about Fox. I'm in love with the network. Uh, I think they do a masterful job. I think that Brett Baer's special report is among the best news uh, that can be delivered out there. Show me a better news program. I do think that they are fair and balanced. Not to say that they don't have right-leaning shows, but they have a lot of left-leaning individuals on there. And uh, I think that the reason why people are watching them, and Quinnipiac backs this up, it's entertaining. Well, no, they voted in the most trusted news organization in the United States. Quinnipiac, they had a poll. So we don't we, we don't have to you and I are gonna so disagree possibly well, about some of this stuff, yeah, so that's let, fine. Listen, but the, I, I like them. So let's and I, talk and I have an enormous amount of respect for Roger Ailes. Well and Bill Shine for that matter. So let's talk a little bit about your involvement with Barack Obama, because there's a wonderful arc when yeah. people talk about who is Anthony Scaramucci. So you support your former Harvard Law classmate. He gets elected in 2008. We're in the midst of a financial crisis. Lo and behold, there's a lot of chess beating about Wall Street. Um, I try to be as objective as possible in, in Bailout Nation because I didn't want to write the book. The, there's a backstory to that. Bill Fleckenstein's Greenspan's Bubble had come out, and it was wildly successful for a business book. And uh, McGraw-Hill had gone to him and said, okay, now let's do something on Bear Stearns. And he goes, hey, man, I just finished one book. I need a few years to, you know, what it's, you've written a Super few, hard to write you know, a book. It, it takes a year or two to recover. So they asked him, who who else is writing on this? Oh, that's easy. Ritholtz has been writing about Bear and Lehman for a year or two. You should go talk to him. And I said, no, no exaggeration. Half, uh, half a dozen times. I don't want this. So anyway, I tried to be objective, which is a real challenge. But the reason I bring that up within the context is there was a lot of beating on Wall Street. And look, you and I have both been in this industry for 20 plus years. 26 for me. You know that there's a handful of people in every firm that blows up that are respond. My favorite example is AIG it was 70,000 employees, 200 people in the financial products division. And of those 200 people, a dozen were responsible for all of the damage. So when people are beating on Wall Street, they're beating on the headlines or they're beating on a guy like Dick Fold, but 99% of the people at Lehman Brothers didn't cause it to well, blow up, one of the which leads me to the line, hey, Barack, you're beating us like a pinata. Oh, yeah. Well, so that's, that a, that's where I wanted to go with. Well, that was, a, that was a tough line for me. So I was at the museum at a town hall meeting. Susan Krakauer, who's now my producer for- Formerly what? producer at CNBC yeah. and a she big invented, long television invented background. Invented mad money and fast money, long television background. Uh, she's our producer for Wall Street Week and a par partner of mine. Uh, she basically called on me to ask a question of the president. He recognized me immediately. From law school. We, we got a little of a banter. Well, I also supported him. And I mm -hmm. said, well, Mr. President, when are we going to stop whacking Wall Street with a pinata stick? Well, one thing you learn is you sh as an Italian-American, you shouldn't <laughs> use the word whack on live television. Okay? That's one thing you learn. To say the uh, least. And the, you know, the president has a bully pulpit, and so he bullied me with the pulpit. And right. so that was fine. 
But that wasn't the reason why I switched back to but, the Republican but Party. But let's talk about Pinata for one second, yeah, and then ahead. we'll come back to the Republicans. Yeah. And I will have a discussion because I'm an ex-Republican. But you— um. That went viral. That line blew up. It was on The yes. Daily Show. It was on yeah. Fox. It was on CNN. That basically was everywhere. Yeah. What was that like? Well, you know, let me tell you something. Uh, I was lit up by the left-wing blogs. and YouTube? Some, that clip was on YouTube? YouTube. Uh, a, a few uh, million views? You know, Jon Stewart had some funny lines about me that my uh, teenage children still give back to me over the last four or five years. But what I would say to you about that experience is uh, something that I, you should never read when people write about you. That's probably a good idea. But Don't I read did, the comments. <laughs> but I did read a comment where somebody said to me that I was an elitist because I was uh, didn't realize that Wall Street was this great sinning society and Barack Obama was the popular savior and I was an elitist. Uh, because I was a member of the Wall Street community. Like and it's a monolithic I, block. Exactly. And I remember thinking to myself, my God, this person thinks I'm an elitist. I grew up uh, in a middle-class family on Long Island. What parents town did you in, grow up in? In Port Washington. My okay. parents didn't go to college. How am I an elitist? And then it dawned on me, Barry, that the person that wrote that was right, that I had actually become an elitist because I was insulating myself with super wealthy people, managing the money of super wealthy people, going to fancy pants country clubs and fancy pants restaurants. And I was losing touch with some of the things that the middle class of the United States and the lower middle class are suffering with. And so that whole experience for me was hugely valuable uh, because when I worked for Governor Romney on the, uh, the 2012 election, I asked for the opportunity to travel and got an opportunity to see some of the small towns in the United States that are frankly suffering. Hurting, really hurting. You know, we've got a wage depression or stagnation. We have a disposable income decline over the last six or seven years. And, you know, Longer it was than a, that, it goes back decades. Yeah, it goes back decades. But the last six or seven years, we've had an 8% drop. That's fairly yeah. steep. Yeah. And so the point of me bringing all this up is that uh, we have to come up with, this is not a left or right discussion. This is a right or wrong discussion. Or as Scott Walker said at a dinner on Sunday night, it's not a red or blue uh, thing. It's a red, white, and blue thing. And mm -hmm. the point being is that we have to come up with the right policy directives, the right initiatives, uh, corporations, small businesses. We have to figure out a way to close that income gap. Uh, we have to figure out a way to grow the pie. I'm not a big believer in the redistribution theory. I don't think that's ever worked in history. Uh, we have a lot of laboratory documentation about that not working. Uh, and so we have to figure out a way to empower people. And this is another reason not to thread it back to our show, Wall Street Week. But one of the themes and the mission statements of the Wall Street Week is, hey, rely on yourself. You can't rely on Social Security. You can't be a dependent of the government. we got to figure out ways to help you save and build a nest egg for yourself. So that's really a, a fascinating tale. I love that arc. And you basically, I don't know if you're aware of what you just said, but one of your early mentors who had said to you, are you going to grow or are you going to swell? You're basically saying that pre-pinata, you were engaging in a little swelling. Is that what I'm hearing from yeah, you? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I certainly didn't think I was engaging in swelling, but I possibly was not only just engaging in swelling, as I was overly insulating myself 
in a way where uh, you're losing touch with the, mm-hmm. some of the things that you need to really focus on in your life. And so, and in politics, that's huge. And in politics, but also in business, mm-hmm. um, I've really tried to set up Skybridge in a way where who's ever working at Skybridge, they feel like they're getting a good experience. We pay 100% of the health care at Skybridge. Mm-hmm. We give the, uh, m- the most allowable or the maximum profit contribution to the IRAs. 401k or matching or 401k matching. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, I'm Italian. We serve a free meal every day at lunch. If you're there for dinner, we're going to serve you dinner. Uh, my my whole feeling is, is that uh, I feel that we can create a profitable enough firm to help people with their retirement and help people with their current health care. And so, so I really have tried to think about these things in the most human way possible uh, because at the end of the day, um, I think that's all we really have is the relationships that we have with the other people around us. And so, so sometimes if you are in a tunnel or sometimes you're overly focused on certain things, you can mm-hmm. lose focus on important things. I, if I gave you all my flaws, we'd be here for six days and there's a ton, there's a big phone book of them. <laughs> <laughs> but but one thing that the pinata experience did for me it was very eye opening about not overly insulating yourself. So so let me ask you a couple of related questions, and I, I only have you for another fifteen minutes or so before your um, colleague is going to start bouncing off the glass walls in the uh, in the engineers booth. Um, is Wall Street still being treated like a pinata, or have we begun to move past that? Well, I think there's a number of things that have happened, and, and not to use a cliche that one or two bad apples spoils a whole bunch, but what has basically happened is the media focuses on Wall Street. It's a lot like what Willie Sutton said about banks, because that's where the money, where the money is. is. Sure. And so when the media is focusing, uh, the focus has been on sort of three things. The person that's made a billion, uh, the person that lost a billion, and the person that stole a billion. And so it's made a billion, <laughs> lost a billion, stole a billion. And the that stole, makes for good TV. And the stole a billion one is the most riveting because that's the car crash where all the rubbernecking takes right. place. Uh, and so what that does is it infuses the spirit of distrust, malfeasance, malpractice. Uh, and to your earlier point, there were probably 99, 97%, pick the number, most of the people in our community are really trying to do a good job. And most of the people really care about their customers and are not in the ripoff business. And so- uh, that and are offended by the concept nope. of hey, if you have a product to go sell, go sell it. But if you're going to steal from people, what is that job? Well, well, you, you know, know that I, seems to be the if attitude. You, if you worked inside a Skybridge, you'd have to hear this lecture all the time. You know, my my parents and my grandparents, uh, they love me very much. Uh, many of them work with their hands. Many many of these people were never educated, and I always tell the people that work inside a Skybridge. But one thing they did for me is give me my last name clean. There's not enough art. There's not enough, not a big enough house. There isn't a large enough private plane that I need to, to do anything to hurt my family or my mom and dad. And so I really try to drive that home because I think uh, in leadership, the fish thinks from the head down. Mm-hmm. I try to let my staff know we don't ever need to go anywhere near any line. Our job right. is to serve our customers. And I also tell the staff, let me tell you something, there are 600 people relying on the firm Immediately, those are the 60 people inside the firm, and, and then there's all the dependents. That would be my four children, my mom and dad, who I subsidize. Uh, you know, my my employees and, and staff or partners all have children. They need to make mortgage payments. They need to make tuition payments. We got a ton of people relying on us, 
And so don't just think about yourself when you're making decisions. Think about that broad community of people uh, that uh, want you to look out for them. All right. So in the last couple of minutes we have, let me get to my last few questions. There are a couple of questions I always ask and I don't want to skip. Um, But first, a quick hedge fund question. So the rules have recently been changed on on advertising, on marketing. Mm-hmm. How is that changing the, the hedge fund world? Well, I think for right now, it's not changing the hedge fund world because most people have elected to stay away from it because they're getting advice from their outside counsels and their internal counsel that the rules are very uncertain and you don't want to hit a tripwire somewhere right. where you get the, uh, the SEC or some other regulatory agency upset with you. Um, and so I think it's hard. One thing that Skybridge did, which uh, I don't view as necessarily advertising, is we went into a public-private partnership with the city of West Palm Beach, mm-hmm. uh, and we are the sponsors for their bicycle share ride program. So, like like city bike, like here city in bike here, and so we've got uh, 150 bikes. Uh, bicycles at 14 kiosks throughout the city of West Palm Beach. We just opened an office in Palm Beach Gardens. That's pretty clean. That's this this environmentally big, safe. Uh, it, all it is is our logo. I can't believe not, any compliance lawyer would give anybody. No, no, no. That. The outside compliance people, the inside compliance people, all thought that that was okay. Some people call that advertising. I'm calling really it brand. branding. Yeah, I'm calling it brand awareness. I want people to say, hey. This seems like a pretty cool group of people. Let me look at their website or let me check out what they're doing. Uh, That's and then, smart. And then they can make draw their own conclusions about our performance uh, and the quality of the stuff that we're doing inside the firm. So let's, let's talk about hedge funds briefly. There's been a lot of criticism by some people in this room um, that the performance for the whole community of hedge funds uh, has been soft and the fees have been high. Obviously, that doesn't apply to everybody. But by and large, the hedge fund, and by the way, hedge funds continue to attract lots and lots of capital. What what is the story of of hedge fund investing today? It really depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for a panacea or the perfect investment story, it's not out there. And someone that's trying to tell you that it is, well, chances are they'll be in jail before long. <laughs> And so uh, I look at the hedge fund community as a group of people that are super sophisticated, that have a great diversity of skills. They can go long something and short something, which means buy and bet for something or sell and bet against something. Uh, They have an ambidexterity of talent. uh, And the goal, at least the Skybridge goal, is to try to get a high single-digit return with one-third of the volatility of the S&P. I'm not allowed to talk about my performance on a radio show, but people can go to our website and figure it out. Uh, they can sign the disclosure and, and say, all, sure, all that sort of I'll, stuff. I'll but we, it. but we, I will simply tell you that I believe in the industry. I'll simply tell you that we went from one billion to nine point three billion dollars in discretionary assets in five years because we are doing a service to people who want a stable return with less volatility. If they're looking for us to outperform the market. It is not our product. I would not recommend it. If they're looking for us to do something that we cannot do, I certainly try to tell them that I would not recommend it. But there's been softness in the broader industry because of the macroeconomic policy driven by the Federal Reserve. The low interest rates have crushed the long-short manager. And so for your listeners, that's the manager that's taking bets on the long side and taking bets against companies. Uh, What's happened is because of the liquidity 
those markets are rising, and so the shorts are going up on those managers, and they have mediocre performance. They make up 45% of the industry, Barry. And so, so when the monetary policy starts to normalize, I predict that that group of people will do better. But those are really the people that the stories are being written about. We 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 are You're a different group. You're exactly. a different target. We, we have very low exposure to long short managers right now because of the Federal Reserve monetary policy. We're more exposed to structured credit, more exposed to event driven activism and things like that. Uh, both of which I think are well situated for the current economic climate that we're in. Uh, but I'll tell you right now, macro managers and long short managers, if you add the 45%, which is long short, plus the 15, which is macro, roughly two thirds or 60% of our industry is woefully underperforming due to current Federal Reserve monetary policy. So I expect more negative articles to be written about the industry, but it's not telling the whole story. So before I get to my last two questions, I'm going to give you a, this will be the speed round, a few quick questions. Who's um it's pretty clear the Democrats are gonna nominate Hillary. Who's gonna come out of the Republican primary process? Well I'm I'm working super hard for Scott Walker in full disclosure. And so uh I'm uh I'm, so that's I'm, your I'm, choice. I'm raising him money. We've had several events from him this week in New York. Uh, we did an event for him in Naples, Florida. We've done many events in my office already. Uh, Scott has become a, a dear friend. Uh, and I tell you that I think he would be an incredible uh, president. And he would be the guy that I would hire to do the job of fixing many of our problems. What What about the heat coming off of Rubio right after the yeah. the big GOP? Don't dislike convention. him. I think he's very talented. He's a great, very articulate, very, very charismatic, great, great public speaker. Uh, I think he's well versed on a lot of the foreign young, policy issues. Very young. I don't have it. I I've adopted uh, the eleventh commandment of Ronald Reagan: "Is thou shall not say a <laughs> negative thing about a fellow Republican." And so, so for me, I like uh, Senator Rubio. Uh, and I'll make a prediction here on your show. Hopefully, you'll invite me back. If Governor Walker gets the nomination, I expect Marco Rubio to be his vice president. Really? Yeah. That's that's fascinating. Yeah. So, last two questions. I ask these of all my guests, and they always engender a really interesting uh, set of answers. You know, you've been in this business quarter century, coming on starting your second quarter century. You know, what do you see as the next major shift? in the financial services industry? I, I think that the uh, there'll, be a, there'll be a further electronic shift. I think advice is going to be coming over the smartphone. Advice is going to be coming over the LinkedIn-like and Facebook-like apps. Um, I think the generation that you and I made, which is our sons and daughters, are more comfortable with the computer interface, uh, less comfortable with the written word in a magazine or a newspaper. Right. And so I think that there will be more efficiencies created in the advice-giving side of financial services. No question about that. And, and here's my favorite question I get to ask, and you're really a perfect guy to ask this. What do you know today about investing, about the market, about this industry that you wish you knew when you started? Well, you know, I was investing in biotechnology call options when I started because, you see, Barry, I was a guru in biotechnology even though I didn't have any scientific background. And so I was absolutely certain that certain drugs were going to get through their phase three trials and so forth. And I lost about fifty or $60,000 <laughs> of money that I didn't need to lose at that time or want to. And so I really wish I could have told my younger self – 
uh, to stick with that simple computational table known as compound interest. Shoot for a 7 8 9% return. The turtle wins the race. Mm-hmm. 25 years, unfortunately, when you're our age, you know they go by very quickly. When you're young, they think you're, they're forever away. Right. Uh, but if you just stick to a very steady, healthy, low-leveraged investment discipline, you will get yourself and your family to the promised land. I wish I had knew, known that back then. Uh, my first 10 years on Wall Street, I spent trying to be the smartest person in the crowd doing the stupendous thing, finding the long shot that was going to make me a hero on a golf course where I could brag to somebody that I was 10 to 1 on something uh, when I was 0 for 100, if you will. And so I would tell people and my younger self, be patient. The turtle wins the race. The truisms of a Warren Buffett or a Charlie Munger, uh, they, they exist today. They existed 50 years ago. They'll exist 50 years from now. Uh, and you're not smarter than your grandparents. You're not smarter than your parents. You may be more technologically adept, but follow those well-steeped principles. We've been speaking with Anthony Scaramucci of Skybridge Capital, host of the SALT Conference and Wall Street Week. My name is Barry Ritholtz. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes. You can see the other 40 such conversations we've had over the past year. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or my Twitter feed, at Ritholtz. You can find Anthony Scaramucci on Twitter, at Scaramucci, or at WallStreetWeek.com or Skybridge Capital. Yeah, a Scaramucci at SkybridgeCapital.com or Prosper at WallStreet.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.